And so what I found in my own study is that in actuality, uh, separation in and of itself is not a sin. And in fact, God sometimes uses separation as a, 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 uh, a part of his remedial will in order to quarantine sins like racism. <laughs> and so that he actually uses separation at, at times, uh, even though it's not his ideal will, it's his remedial will. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we are continuing our conversation with Ingram London, a PhD student at Andrews University who is studying theodicy and Black theology. We are progressing through our talk on the history of segregation in the church and looking into biblical examples where division and separation were used as a preservative means, quarantining sin, and allowing for the development of God's will. We will have some book recommendations for you available at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at Advent Next. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is Advent Next. Just kind of so, you know, there's been some talk about like the possibility of state conferences dissolving into regional conferences, right? Right. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Do you think that's a viable solution from some of the conversations that you've been in? So um, I, I definitely appreciate the sentiment because usually when people talk about merging the conferences, they, they almost, it's, it's automatic that they're asking black people to give up <laughs> the regional conferences, to give up their agency and, and their institutions and, and join the, the state uh, conferences. And, and so in that way, it's actually disenfranchising black people all, all over again, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, I have heard uh, of certain movements that are actually asking for state conferences to, to dissolve and, and join regional conferences. Um, I, I, I love the, um, the humility that's, that's coming uh, from, from that, uh, that particular plan, that particular perspective. I still see a lot of problems in terms of the logistics, uh, administratively. It, it's just, you, you have to, at the end of the day, there are practical problems that you have to address. For example, you don't need two conference presidents. Are you asking, are you literally asking state conference presidents to give up their jobs and, and everyone that's employed in a state conference office to give up their jobs because you don't need, uh, double, uh, <laughs> the, the employees to, to handle the same geographic area. So I see logistical problems there, but even more importantly than that, uh, again, th there seems to be this idea of, of skipping a, this initial step of making sure that we get rid of racism first. <laughs> okay, so that has to be addressed first. You have to have that critical mass of repentance first. Um, and again, there are multiple ways that people could uh, demonstrate that that repentance by actually getting involved in social justice issues. So I, I would love to see more white churches marching with their sister churches in, in, in protests and different things of that nature to show that you actually do care about these issues and that you stand in solidarity with the black community. Uh, and until black uh, African-American Seventh-day Adventists see that, it, it's going to be difficult to have that merger, because what happens is this, if you merge, and with uh, uh, our white brethren being uh, numerically superior, then black people are then again disenfranchised, even if you, you uh, dissolve a state conference and they dissolve into a regional conference, at the next constituency meeting, when you vote in leaders, 
I, I mean, who knows what will happen? You may see the entire uh, black leadership removed from office. So that's why I say I still see problems because we're skipping a step. I should have mentioned uh, in my previous career, uh, so right now I'm studying to uh, hopefully to teach <laughs> theology in one of our institutions. Before that, I was a pastor for, for a little while. But before that, I was actually uh, an IT consultant. And one of the first principles of consulting is that you have to identify the problem before you offer a solution. And mm -hmm. I think that that is the issue that I am seeing in the church today is that we have a lot of consultants who are giving a lot of solutions, but they haven't actually identified the problem. Mm -hmm. They think that the separation itself is a problem, and that is not the problem. That's actually a result of the problem, which is racism and a radical lack of empathy. Mm. Well, how does it feel just personally when you uh, hear, you know, you had some conversation with your, uh, with different friends of yours who either they don't believe that racism exists in the church or they see kind of the voice of the black church as being problematic and, and too involved. Like, how do you process that? And because, you know, you made a statement of like, they're still my friends. They're still people that I love. You know, how do you reconcile that sense of being hurt or, you know, having to just, how, how do you have a relationship, right? With people <laughs> who don't, who don't understand where you're coming from? Sure, sure. I, I mean, on, on a practical level, I have to pray a lot. And <laughs> I have to sometimes take breaks from from conversation. So there, you know, I'm not always uh, available to talk about race with some of these individuals, even when they want to talk about it. I will just not make myself available because I'm just not in the space to have that conversation and for it to remain uh, Christian and, and cordial. So, so I, I just have to be honest uh, with that. Um, but yeah, there's, in, in terms of, of how, um, I myself and, and others react when we hear people deny that racism is still a reality in, in this country. It, it is, it's mind-boggling. It's, it's baffling uh, to, to us as African Americans. It's, it's, it can be infuriating, uh, especially when you have videotape of racism happening before your eyes, you know, with, with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, which was, I mean, quite literally, Ahmaud Arbery, that was a lynching, that you saw a lynching uh, in, on, on your iPhone or on your computer screen or on the television. You saw a lynching, a lynching happening before your eyes in 2020. Um, so when, when our white brethren deny that racism is, is a reality, it, it is quite hurtful. Um, it, it can be infuriating and, and, and baffling all, all at the same time, which is why sometimes as an African-American, you have to just disengage from those types of conversations, because in reality, it's not the African-American community's job to educate everyone else about racism. If we tell you that there's a problem, there, there comes there, at some point you have to take personal responsibility to research the subject for yourself. Um, and and stop uh, stop using your black friends to as your personal mentors and, and guides through through racism because I, I think one of the things that a, a lot of white Adventists don't don't realize is that when you ask an African American to tell their story and retell their story of the, of the times that they've experienced racism uh, personally and to ask African Americans to explain again and again and again systemic racism it re-traumatizes us we don't want to think about those things all the time. <laughs> Right. And so um, I would just uh, give that that little bit of, of advice to my Caucasian brothers and sisters that, um, 
give your African-American friends uh, space uh, from time to time they, they, <laughs> when you want to talk about, about race. Be understanding that we don't always want to talk about it because it is so painful. Mm. It's interesting, too. And I've read the statistic, and I'll have to look where it's from, but they're saying um, people who grow up in the hood, you know, uh, tend to have the same symptoms of PTSD as, as uh, war veterans, you know, that Correct. they're dealing with the same uh, traumatic events. And so you made a great point, you know, it is re-traumatizing to have to constantly live these very, very painful experiences. Absolutely. And there's a, an excellent resource that uh, explains it very well by uh, Joy DeGry. I believe the book is called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, um, which not only talks about the uh, effects of slavery that you personally, uh, not slavery, but um, uh, racism that you personally may experience and, and be re-traumatized when you have to retell your story. But also uh, she combines that concept with epigenetics and that there may be, in, in a very real way, a legacy of slavery that impacts us today in terms of behaviors, in terms of even our health and our, our, uh, our physical health and our psychological and emotional health uh, have been damaged uh, by, by slavery. Um, so that's, I, I mean, again, if you want to know more about that, I, I would definitely yeah. recommend that, that particular uh, work. All right. I need to get this book and get her on here because this <laughs> sounds like a fantastic topic to to look at. And, you know, and you said something also, you know, believe them, you know, a lot of times when, you know, some of the work that I've done working with domestic violence victims and sexual assault victims, you know, the, the number one thing that, that they're trying to educate pastors in is that 95% of people who say that they've been sexually assaulted statistically, um, it's true, you know, it's verifiable. There's a very low margin of, of people who are lying. And so the, the message is, if somebody says this, believe them. And so when people are saying, you know, I've experienced racism, you know, there is an onus upon a person who's listening to believe that person, not to not to go through the, you know, the the jungle gym of disbelief and going through the hoops because it's not in their personal experience, right? Absolutely. It's it's incredibly uh, dehumanizing <laughs> to <laughs> to share your story about racism, especially when when a, a white person may ask you uh, you know, to prove racism by sharing an experience, you tell them, and then they say, well, have you looked at it from this perspective or from this mm. perspective? How do you know that that was racist? And and, and that that's just not the time for that conversation. <laughs> so definitely, mm. definitely, uh, we need to believe people when they, when they, uh, when they share their stories. So you went through this kind of, you know, 180 journey, kind of this optimism uh, going into thinking maybe there is some merit to us becoming kind of this one church structurally, but then you kind of had this journey to where you're in this kind of 180 uh, perspective where you're like, no, there is merit in this separation. In fact, you have some, uh, you've done some kind of study on looking at is separation of itself a sinful act? Uh, absolutely. So, um, if I could share just a, a, a personal uh, vignette. So I attended a, a uh, it was a small conference. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to give too many details. <laughs> I don't want to expose anyone. But um, we were doing some some coaching in, in this conference and one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching and, and, in, and also some group coaching. And in one of these uh, coaching sessions, uh, one particular uh, pastor, he was sharing a, a problem that he had encountered and 
uh, what he was uh, related was that there was an, an elderly uh, Caucasian Seventh-day Adventist who was a, a teacher, one of the um, uh, prominent teachers in the elementary school at his church. Uh, this, so this was a, a church school. And uh, there were African-American students at this school. And apparently this teacher told a, a young student, uh, probably around six, seven uh, years of age, so probably like first, second grade, something like that, um, she asked this young man what he wanted to be when he grew up, and he said something. It was something related to one of the STEM fields, like science, technology, or engineering, or math, something like that. And she responded that uh, maybe you should pick something else that that is more, uh, 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 I guess, uh, I don't remember the exact uh, words, but she basically was telling this young man, uh, this uh, this child, really, that he should not pursue a, a STEM field career because it would be too difficult for him. Um, when I heard that story, I, I, I wanted to jump out of my seat. <laughs> and like, what in the world is going on? <laughs> like, it's, it's, this can't still be happening in, in our... And I mean, I, I, could, I guess I could see it happening in the world, but in, in the household of faith, how could this be happening? Again, we have to address the issue of rooting out racism in the church first before we even talk about uh, merging and reunifying. Because if we reunify, what we're saying is that black and white students are going to be going to the same schools and that they're going to have the same teachers. And some of those teachers may not be sensitive to the fact that they could uh, psychologically damage a young African-American boy or girl and dissuade them from actually living up to their full potential because of their unconscious bias about uh, black people and what they're capable of. So I don't, for me personally, I just think it's too much of a risk for African-Americans at this point without seeing that critical mass of repentance uh, in, in white Adventism is too much of a risk for us at this point to just hand over our children uh, and, and our ministers and, 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 and different uh, individuals within our constituency over uh, to state conferences and, and allow them to, to be victimized. Um, in terms of that 180, though, it really, uh, it really started with me rereading my brother's book. Um, and again, a prophet has no honor in their own home, so I guess I didn't pay any attention to it the first time I read it. But I, reading his book, it, it really helped me to... Uh, um, just uh, flesh out these ideas a little bit more and understand the consequences and what was at stake in terms of, of uh, dissolving regional conferences or, or any type of merger between black conferences and, 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 uh, and state conferences. Um, so along with that, and, and this is more recently, I actually decided, you know what, I need to do a, a Bible study. I need to explore this for myself and see because I, one of the arguments that you will hear out there is that the separation in and of itself is a sin because Christ wanted the body, his body, the church, to be one, right? So there, there's this argument out there that even having this structural separation along, uh, you know, pretty uh, <laughs> obviously along racial lines, that that in itself is wrong. And, and that that is a sin that, that needs to be eradicated from the church. And so what I found in my own study is that in actuality, uh, separation in and of itself is not a sin. And in fact, God sometimes uses separation as a, 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 uh, a part of his remedial will 
in order to quarantine sins like racism. <laughs> and so that he actually uses separation at, at times, uh, even though it's not his ideal will, it's his remedial will. Um, I, there are countless uh, examples, but I, I will just, uh, I'll just highlight the one that I did a, a deep dive into. And if uh, people want to look at it uh, for themselves, I, I would definitely invite them to look at uh, first, first Kings chapter 11 and First Kings chapter 12. And what we have there uh, in the Bible in First Kings is we have an episode where God's people are united and flourishing, but then something happens where the kingdom of, of, of God, his representation here on earth, actually splits into two separate kingdoms. And we have this very interesting uh, phrase in, in, the, in the text itself where it says that this thing was from the Lord. <laughs> so so it, 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 again, it calls into question this idea, is separation actually in itself a problem? And I would say no from the biblical evidence. Separation is not the problem in actuality, uh, racism. So the, the schism or the separation that takes place, it actually happens in 1 Kings chapter 12. But you really need to understand 1 Kings chapter 11 in order to understand what's, what's going on in, in chapter 12. So what we have in 1 Kings chapter 11 is that we see the decline of, of the reign of, of Solomon. So the kingdom of Israel at its apex came under uh, David and especially under Solomon. Under Solomon, the kingdom reached its, its greatest uh, geographic uh, area in terms of the territory that it controlled and in terms of its prosperity. So, and you can read about that in, in, uh, in first Kings, uh, chapter four, uh, and, 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 um, all, actually, all the chapters previous to, to 1 Kings chapter 11, you can see all the prosperity uh, that Israel was having uh, under King Solomon. But un, in uh, chapter 11, you see that it's mentioned that, uh, that King Solomon, he actually had uh, instituted forced labor on the Israelites. Uh, in fact, about 30,000 of his subjects were required uh, to, um, to participate in building projects. And some of these projects were good, like the temple, for example, but also his palace. And there were other building projects as well that, that the Bible mentions uh, that, that these people would have been used to, to construct. So you had forced labor, but you also had heavy taxation. And you can find that in 1 Kings chapter 4, that King Solomon, his household had grown so large, which we'll talk about in just a second as to why that happened, but his household had grown so large that actually uh, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, each tribe was, or, or Israel was divided into 12 different districts, roughly along uh, tribal um, designations. And over each district, a governor was placed, including an individual named Jeroboam, who would eventually become the, the king of the, of the, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel after the split. But those governors were responsible to uh, gather enough resources to support the household of Solomon for one month. So it took an entire tribe of Israelites to support the king and his family for one month uh, for, of, of each year. So you had heavy taxation. You also have uh, conscription. There was, of course, slavery of, of non-Jewish people. They're just outright slavery. But then you have this other issue as well in terms of King Solomon's demise, which everyone is familiar with, that he had uh, a, a, a lust problem, <laughs> that he, he had uh, somewhere around 700 wives, 300 concubines. 
Um, now, some of this uh, we're, we're sure was probably uh, because of a political reason. So he would cement alliances with other countries. Uh, the first one uh, was actually with uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And then to cement that alliance, he actually married uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt's daughter. Um, but uh, somewhere down the line, Solomon begins to slip in his religious fidelity, and he begins to actually uh, try to please his, his, new, his new wives and concubines by building uh, different edifices like temples and shrines and different things for his wives because his wives were foreigners and they came from other cultures worshiping other gods. And so he would build these different shrines and, and temples for them uh, around uh, the, the capital city of, of Jerusalem. Now, if you think back for a second, who is actually building these temples? So these are those same 30,000 <laughs> conscripted Israelites, same people who built God's temple, the temple for Yahweh, right? The same people who built the palace. Now they're being <laughs> conscripted and forced to build pagan temples, right, to, for, to, to pagan gods. So now you have not just, you know, we, we would just call just regular, you know, state oppression, which is forced labor and, and heavy taxation, but now even spiritual oppression because you're being forced to participate in, in, in this construction of, of uh, pagan worship sites for, um, for Solomon's wives. So you have that, that issue uh, as well. And then if you think about why did Solomon need all of this uh, support in, in terms of having an entire tribe support his family for a month uh, in terms of resources, the reason for that, of course, is it goes right back to his 700 wives and 300 concubines. So you had those individuals, but you also had uh, a retinue of, of servants who had to serve these individuals. You also had the children that were the products of these unions. And so his household had become huge and probably unbearable for the Israelites. In fact, they say it was unbearable uh, later in 1 Kings uh, chapter 12. So as a result of Solomon's apostasy, uh, God uh, essentially warns Solomon and tells him, after you die, I'm going to break up the kingdom because of what you have done. And because not only was did he build these pagan worship sites, but he also began to worship at these sites himself and committed uh, apostasy. So you have that issue. And then when we come to 1 Kings chapter 12, Solomon has died and his son Rehoboam is in line to, to actually uh, ascend to the throne and, and take his father's crown. And so he travels uh, to the northern region of, of Israel to be uh, crowned and anointed as king. And so when he gets there, the people, they, they arrive, and instead of just uh, anointing and crowning him as he uh, expected them to, they decide to negotiate. <laughs> so they say, no, you're going to <laughs> you're have to negotiate for your crown. And what we want is we want uh, a, a, a lighter uh, forced labor construction conscriptions. We want lighter taxes. And if you do that, then we will anoint you as king and we'll serve you forever. So Rehoboam, he decides to uh, consult and he wants three days to do that. So he tells him to come back in three days. He wants to consult with his advisors. His, uh, his older advisors, the ones that served under Solomon, they tell him, hey, you need to give in here. Your, your dad did <laughs> kind of oppress the people a little bit. And so you need to give in here and, and, and acquiesce to their demands. And we promise you, if you do this, these people will serve you for the rest of their lives. 
He didn't like that advice. Rehoboam didn't. So he decided to ask the, the young men, the Bible says the young men that grew up with him, their advice, and they tell him to actually increase the, uh, the forced labor, the national service that his father had instituted, and increase the taxes. And so that's what he decides to do. And when the children of Israel come back and, and are uh, uh, negotiating and asking, okay, what is your decision? He tells them, that in actuality that he is going to increase their burdens and that what the, his father had done was nothing compared to what he was going to do to them. <laughs> so, so, and quite naturally, they, they reject him as king, which is what we would I- expect. But, but this is the thing that I think that we miss uh, uh, when we study this, um, this particular story. And that is that the, the children of Israel, this is not a, a flippant thing that they're doing, rejecting Davidic uh, the Davidic monarchy and Davidic kingship. When you when you look at the the Book of Psalms and you look at the 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 songs, because this was the, the Book of Psalms was essentially their hymn book, right? So they're using these. This is a, a these are their worship aids, and we know that David wrote a, a lot of the Psalms, if not most of them. And so they're they're singing these Psalms on Sabbath. They're singing these songs when they go to to Jerusalem and to the temple. And in a lot of these songs, are, are, there's verbiage about God loves David and, and his seed forever, and God's, uh, or David's uh, uh, sons will forever reign on the throne of Israel, and all of these different things. And so for them, this is not just a political matter. This is also a spiritual issue as well, because they're, in their minds, they are risking being a part of something that that God was trying to form, which was this Davidic monarchy whom one day the Messiah was going to come through, right? And so they're risking that by doing this negotiation back and forth with, with Rehoboam. And they decide actually, and this is what they say, they say, see to your own house, O David, every man of Israel go to your tents. And so they reject the Davidic monarchy and they say, you know what? There's nothing for us in, in, the, in this Davidic kingdom. We're going to go and form our own thing. Uh, David and you and your descendants, you, you mind your own business and you can do whatever you want in Judah, in your territory. We're going to do our own thing. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Rehoboam, he's, he's sulking and he's upset. He's mad. He's irate. He goes back home and he raises an army of, uh, of, uh, of his countrymen, the, the Judahites, and also some Benjamites who decided to, to defect uh, to him as well. And he raises this army, and he is marching north. And as they're marching north, a prophet stops them from actually invading uh, the, the, the northern tribes and, and reasserting control over them. And this prophet tells Rehoboam, go home, do not fight against your brothers. This thing is from the Lord. So this whole separation, the separation of God's people was actually, was actually God's remedial will in this situation. Was it God's will for the children of Israel to be separate? No, but neither was it God's will for Solomon to oppress (laughs) his people, right? But Solomon was a free moral agent. He could do that. And Rehoboam was promising to do even worse than his father had done. And God condoned the northern tribes of Israel separating from that oppression. And so what we see here is an example where separation is not sin. It can actually be the remedial will of God revealed in order to quarantine uh, a particular sin that is being sanctioned within the people of God at that time. In this case, it's, it's oppression in, in the form of forced labor and high taxation. 
I think that a similar application can be made today in regards to regional conferences in terms of the oppression that African Americans suffered. So there's a lot of things that people uh, unfortunately don't know about, and that's why I recommended those resources earlier, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist and the Civil Rights Movement and Protests in Progress, because a lot of our people who are... Um, admonishing and pushing this idea of merging the conferences. They don't know the history, unfortunately. And so you, you had issues, of course, the Lucy Byron incident, which we, which we talked about, which was the catalyst uh, of, uh, of the regional conferences coming into existence. But you also had situations where ministers who wanted to advance, who had the talent, who had uh, the mental acumen to, to advance beyond simply uh, administering over a church or a district of churches, but actually wanted to be conference presidents, they were not afforded that opportunity because they were black. But you also have instances where, and I mean, this, this really boggles my mind, where black, uh, young black Adventists wanted to serve as mis missionaries to expand the kingdom of God overseas, were rejected and, not, and told that they could not be missionaries because the host countries that you want to go to, they don't want black people coming. They wanted whites to come and be missionaries because blacks would not be respected. And, and in reality, those individuals who are the head of the work in some of these missionary fields, the real, the real issue is that they just did not want black people in their territory because they did not like black people. You have stories of individuals, um, blacks trying to attend white churches and, and deacons, meeting them at the door with, with loaded weapons and saying that they will, they will shoot them and calling uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow Seventh-day Adventists, calling them the N-word and threatening their lives if they tried to step in, into a white worship service and, and worship God together on his holy Sabbath. I mean, you have all of this history, and, and uh, as well as the, the muzzling of black ministers from, from get, being involved in the civil rights movement, and on and on and on, you have this whole history. And so I think when people are talking about merging the conferences without actually dealing with the hurt and the pain and the racism that has taken place in the past, and in some cases is still taking place, if you don't, if you skip that step, I mean, your your efforts are going to be fruitless because at the end of the day, if we merge back together and we don't deal with the racism that actually caused the separation in the first place, then you're just going to have another split and it's going to be even worse this time. It may be an actual institutional split with a Seventh-day Adventist uh, church being split into two denominations, one black and one uh, for everyone else. I think even when we look at the the plan of salvation, essentially what we see is separation, right? That earth has been quarantined in a sense uh, to keep the infection of sin from growing. And it was, like you said, it, it was a remedial measure that God took. Wasn't in his ideal plan, but it's the best that, that we can do at this point, given the problem of evil, evil in our hearts and the problem of sin. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's so many examples. I mean, even the, the first conflict in heaven, you, you could say it was a quarantine with Lucifer and his angels being thrown out. Yeah. Um, you, you see it with, with Adam and Eve being uh, exiled from the Garden of Eden. You see it at the Tower of Babel with God separating the nations. And you see it all over the place, even within the household of, of, of faith, just like the example I just talked about in, in First Kings. Uh, you see it with, with Paul and Barnabas separating. It, it's all over the place in, in the Bible. And so definitely separation is used uh, in a remedial way for, for God to accomplish it, his will. 
I think that that just goes to show the practicality of who God is rather than the idealism, which I think really matches <laughs> your own journey, right? And I think the right. journey of many of us who have not gone through it uh, completely, it's like, ideal, ideally, you know, uh, we'd all <laughs> still be, you know, uh, west of Eden, right? right. Um, <laughs> but that's just not the world that we live in. And so how do we now make accommodations for our present reality in a way that mitigates sin uh, as far as possible. So I think, exactly. yeah. So exactly. I just kind of want to leave you with some, uh, a last thought on this. So whatever it is that you want to share with our audience. Sure. I, I've just, I guess to summarize everything, I would just say that before we, we talk about reunifying conferences, before we talk about merging conferences, dissolving black conferences, or even dissolving state conferences and, and merging them with with the uh, regional conferences that we 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 really need to deal with the root problem, which is the sin of racism. Um, we need a critical mass of of repentance within the church for the racial bigotry uh, that we have seen in the past, and that is still present within uh, the church today. And we need the church to actually take measures to make up for those shortcomings so that if we ever were to come back together and, and merge conferences, that we wouldn't just uh, end up in the same situation again where black people are, are harmed and, and traumatized. So again, I would just remind everyone that separation separation in itself did not address the root problem uh, that, that we're dealing with as a church. Um, and it was, it never was supposed to resolve that that particular uh, problem because the problem again is racism, and and a lack of, of empathy. But what separate conferences, what they do provide for us as as Black Adventists is that it provides us a safe place to be both Black and Adventist at the same time, and, and not be chastised or or, uh, or censured or or disciplined in some way because we want to be involved in our communities to uplift our communities in regards to the issues uh, and, and oppression that that it is facing. So. Again, getting rid of, of separate conferences, that's not the solution because that was not the problem <laughs> to begin with. Um, administrative unity did not produce racial harmony in, in the beginning. And so going back to administrative unity is not going to do it either. Uh, there has to be that hard work of, of repentance. We have to get to the underlying issues of racial animosity, uh, ethnocentrism, pride, that radical lack of empathy that, that we sometimes see in, in the church. Um, because really, you know, dissolving Black conferences is not going to make that disappear. Be sure to stay tuned for next week's episode with Dr. Calvin Rock, author of Protest and Progress. Recommended readings for this week include Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Joy DeGruy, Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram Kendi, and The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible, as well as our guest, Ingram London. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at the handle at AdventNext. Thanks so much for tuning in and see you next week.